This is part two of a two-part podcast. In a world on the brink of social collapse, one website stands above the rest to fight back the zombie horde of corporate trolls. Permies.com. Take back control of your destiny and protect your loved ones from the toxic gick coming at you from all directions. Strap on your overalls and start building that bunker of abundance with the good vibes and friendly, helpful insight found at Permies.com. I am, um, I am now ready to move on to talking about, uh, the five permacle chips, which I think uh, and are you ready to move on to that? Yes. Okay. Um, first thing, five, five permaculture principles. I thought that there were 12 permaculture principles. How can this be? It's why right here we are. We're looking at the book. There are five. Now, I have to admit that when I got to this part of the book, I'm kind of, because it's been a very long time since I have read the book cover to cover, that I kind of thought, wait a minute, five? I thought there were 12. And then um, before we started the show, then I needed you to remind me of the history. Well, not even remind me, like suddenly learn for the first time why there's five here, but yet, for the principles, I'm always thinking that there's 12. And um, and it's like it has to do with I haven't been uh, paying attention to this little tidbit. And the thing you had to say about why I see five here and think that there are 12, I think that that is a fascinating thing that I didn't know until today when you told me. Go ahead. Alan, it's now the Alan show. <laughs> yes, teach me, um, teach me one more time. Why five versus twelve? So the five that are here in this part, which is uh, section two point three of the designer's manual, have become widely known as the Mollisonian principles, um, and we'll go through those in a minute. They were um, articulated here, and they've become you know a critical part of just about every PDC that gets taught is. You go through these five, but uh, at the same time that, that Mollison was off doing his thing and writing the designer's manual and teaching and so forth, uh, David Holmgren had kind of taken a different path. He wasn't out and evangelizing um, quite as widely. He was he had uh, bought a property uh, in in Australia, uh, which he called Meliodora, and was sort of practicing. He was um, observing and and working with the land and so forth. And um, a good number of years later, whereas the designer's manual came out in the 80s, uh, in 2002, David Holmgren published his book, Permaculture, subtitled Principles and Pathways Beyond Sustainability. So that is where he articulated his 12 um, principles. So those have sometimes been called the Holmgrenian principles, whereas the ones in the designer's manual we're about to talk about are called the Mollisonian principles. And it is, to me, they are complementary principles. They, um, um, you know, that, uh, that I teach both of them in the PDC. We go through uh, both sets of principles. I think you have to uh, in order to unpack certain information that is very helpful uh, in design thinking. 
The last thing I would point out is the word principle itself. And um, the idea behind a principle is that it is broadly applicable uh, across a wide range of different design situations. So when we start looking at principles, they are applicable at what I would call the Gaia scale. That is, you can take these principles and apply them no matter what climate zone or ecoregion you happen to be in because they are top-level principles. When we start getting into looking at individual climate zones, then we start looking at strategies and techniques where strategies typically are applicable to an individual climate zone or ecoregion. So when here early in the book, he's laying out, you know, concepts and design, he's laying out principles, which are broad approaches that we can take in, uh, and they, they can pretty much be applied um, in, in, in any different situation on planet Earth, provided that you actually apply it to the circumstances. So we take the principle and then we apply it to circumstances to derive strategies and techniques. Okay. Um, I gotta, I wanna state a thing about my relationship with, uh, Dave Holmgren. And, and that is that, of course, uh, his contributions are magnificent. And I gotta say that when it comes, if, if there's any, uh, difference between my philosophy set and David Holmgren's philosophy set, I'm probably wrong and he's probably right. And so I gotta say, uh, there was a point in time before I took my first ever PDC that I read all the permaculture books except one. And, and I had the book and it was Holmgren's book and I tried to read it. I really tried and I don't know what it is, but there's something up about the book that was a bit like oil and water with me. I, for some reason, just couldn't seem to get traction in it. It, it seemed kind of political. It seemed um, uh, it seemed to be kind of this this way of, of thinking that I I don't know. It, it did not feed me. I I was having trouble. It, it wasn't keeping my attention. Maybe. Um, for some reason, the, the book was not for me. It was, it was like, I, I just couldn't seem to enjoy it. Even though at the time I was so bonkers about permaculture, I was reading everything about permaculture. So, and at the same time, my understanding is that the number of people that thoroughly enjoy that book is profound. That it's that I'm the weirdo. I'm the odd duck out on this. Um, the next thing is is that when we go over the the twelve permaculture principles, which is Brennan principles, um, I I kind of feel like they are okay. I like some of them better than others, and um, and I I kind of you know wish for parts of them to to be worded slightly differently, but. Again, that's probably on me. On the other hand, the stuff that that are the five principles from Mollison are things that I resonate with extremely well. In fact, you know, the big black book I, I resonate with. I, I I don't find that surprising. Um, okay. because 
Mollison was an agent provocateur, um, and and uh, he that was part of his modus operandi, right? He he was a troublemaker, and um, he he and so um, there's a lot of his personality that I, I, I it doesn't surprise me that you would uh, you would appreciate. Um, Mr. Holmgren is a is a very quiet and gentle soul, um, and um, I, I think takes a very long long view, um, very quiet and reflective, um, and he writes that way, and um, it's um, it does take a different mindset to engage with Holmgren's writing. Um, yeah, so I, I do. I do find it fascinating, Paul, that you you uh, resonate with Mr. Mollison, but not so much with Mr. Holmberg. Yeah, and uh, I, and I, I, I guess one of the things I want to say is, is that, of course, when this podcast is released, there'll be a thread on Permis about it. Perhaps people can reply to the thread, and and they can uh, let let me know whether or not, like, how well the Holmgren stuff resonates with them. And and it's like as much as I enjoy Mollison's stuff. I, of course, enjoy Sepp Holzer's stuff even more. And um, I tried to, to while, you, while you were talking a moment ago, I tried to look up uh, Sepp Holzer's design principles. And I couldn't find them. I thought, oh, they'll be all, Google will be all over that. And it's like, no, I couldn't, I couldn't find it. But um, I, I found uh, his principles to be rather fascinating. Um, okay. Uh, I guess, I guess the big thing is, is that the path and the, and the, the way that I've always described it in this podcast many times, um, as the difference between say, uh, like, like leaving Mollison out of it and just, um, Holmgren versus Holzer, that Holmgren's general approach to everything. And so I'm going to say this so you can correct me if your opinion or, or you can offer an alternative opinion to this or, or possibly even validate what I'm saying. And that is that um, Holmgren is going to say the world has these problems, and if we embrace the ethics and the principles, then we end up with these solutions, these these things that we can do. And um, Holzer's approach is, here's a list of things we can do, and then if you do these things... You just so happen to um, embrace these principles and these ethics. So they're kind of going, they're kind of doing the same thing, but from opposite directions. Mm-hmm. And and my, and of course, you and I have had this conversation many times. I believe that if you start with the ethics and go to the principles and then try to go to the solutions, I believe that people can go off in all kinds of wackadoodle directions that don't necessarily lead you to the appropriate and I find that a lot of the techniques people end up with while trying to do this are not ethical. And so, but they labeled them as ethical because they started with the ethics. Okay, so now uh, this is this is my observation, my position. I lay it before you to either say that you agree with it or that you pro- most likely don't. So what I would say is having designed systems for 30 years, 
that I keep on seeing this question come up as to whether systems design is top down or bottom up, basically. And there's different variations on that. But, you know, um, Holmgren says design from patterns to detail. It's one of the 12 principles. Um, SEP is basically saying, you know, here, you, uh, you, uh, you, you start off with all of these things and you start patterning them in, in this and it builds itself up. And um, what I have come to the conclusion is that neither of them in their real implementation is doing what they say. But what they're doing is they're explaining it. You ha- the problem with explaining a multidimensional dance is you have to explain it one thing at a time. You have to explain it linearly. And so it just so happens that Mr. Holmgren likes to describe the dance starting up at the top and then working his way down. Um, and then Zep likes to do it the other way around. However, no real designer who is a high-level designer that I have run into whose designs I personally think are impressive does either one of those things. What they do is they dance back and forth, the top and the bottom, that there are some things in their brain that are happening looking at the broad picture, the broad principles, and working their way down. There's other things that are tactical that they're looking at, and they're, they're and the, those two things are happening simultaneously, and they're informing each other. And they converge iteratively on a systems design that works. Um, and so it's not an either-or thing. If you try... To do it either or, you wind up with suboptimal results either way, in my personal experience. But you've got to teach it one way or the other because a beginner can't do that dance to start off with. So you're like, okay, well, how do I teach you the, the, the steps of the dance, right? How do I do that? And... um and, and um, it's just like when I first started playing music, uh, my teacher made me play scales and arpeggios, which, you know, they build the technique to be able to eventually play music. And um, to me, there is very much this, this idea of synthesis. It's something that if you really want to go and look at it, it's something that the architect Christopher Alexander wrestled with a lot in his um, in his big series on the nature of life and, 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 and his books on creating living systems, he was talking about this dichotomy between bottom-up and top-down thinking. And um, from me reading that and thinking about myself, I've come to the conclusion that once you get to the point of um, real designing um, with some experience, you start to converge naturally. It's a very human thing to do, to do both simultaneously and to let the details inform the big picture and the big picture inform the details. My favorite part of what you said was iteratively. Yes. I really believe iteratively is the solution for almost all things. And uh, I know that before learning about agile development and software engineering, um, that I had my own technique that I referred to as iterative development, and mm-hmm. I, just, I thought I was the only one. But uh, uh, the the new agile stuff had you know iterative woven into it, so clearly you know I wasn't. Uh, but uh, uh, I I think that iterative 
works for so many different things. And in this particular case, I think what you're saying is, is that, um, there are times when we're going to do it top down and there's times we're going to do it bottom up. And then, um, before we're even done, we're going to do a couple of iterations, you know, and cycle through those things and, you know, reevaluate and whatnot. But so one of the things I guess I have to bring up, this is something I unpack in a PDC that I don't think is in many other PDCs because I'm a systems engineer. And so I talk about the five different kinds of systems. And so we get into this whole question, people ask me, well, how should we design in permaculture? Of course, the answer is it depends. And to me, it's, it depends upon the kind of system you are designing. Um, and so I have to, I won't go through all of it here, but there are five kinds of systems I define in, cause you know, I started off and you start studying, uh, systems theory from Bertolanffy, uh, from, you know, his, his foundational book in 1960s on systems theory. And you start looking at how we define systems and, and how we describe systems dynamics and so forth. And I unpack some of that, but you start off with a mechanistic system and a mechanistic system is simple. It's linear and so forth. Um, you can do, and you there's it takes a different design approach to do that. I would basically say that iterative design on a bridge is probably not the best thing. People are not going to sit still for you to go. Well, I'm going to build this bridge across this, you know, across this valley uh, 20 times in a row, and then figure out you know the best design. It's a mechanistic system, right? We, because of the way it works, it is going to be built once and sit there. I, uh, I got to stop you right there. Right. Every bridge you build is iterative. Well, it is, but what I'm talking about is you don't build the whole thing and then change it over time. When you talk about iterative design there, you're talking about iterating a mechanistic design. You're going to build the thing once, and you're going to build a system whose job it is basically to perform in a um, in a linear and predictable way. Okay. Okay. I think you can um, build a bridge today without knowing about the Tacoma Narrows Bridge. Right. Yes. And so there was uh, there was at least one iteration there. Yes. So um, what you end up with is. Um, a kind of design that systems engineers do with, with a bunch of other design engineers, what we call reductionists, which is we take it and then there's different specialists that design different PC parts. And then we put the whole thing together. And then, so yes, you will go through iterations, but it's a mechanistic system. It's, it's, it is, um, but it's a reductionist kind of systems engineering. And then we get into what I call complex systems, which I'll unpack too much. Then we get into complex adaptive systems, and the complex adaptive system is what you're working with when you're uh, working with software. Um, software is a complex adaptive system, and that requires iterative deployment, right? You you are very iterative at that point in time, and there's emergent properties that happen in the software and so on and so forth. So we become increasingly, it becomes increasingly important to become iterative then we get to this interesting thing called a living system. And now all of a sudden the rules of the game start to change because we have living systems dynamics in it. We start to have not just, you know, um, em- uh, emergent behavior and complex behavior, but we start to have autopoiesis where the system is making itself and assembling itself and it's changing the world around it in order to, 
you know, as an active part, we can no longer, when we get into a living system, and the final system type is ecological, where you have multiple living systems all working together in an ecosystem. And permaculture tends to design there. And what that means is that we have what I call emergent design at that point in time. Um, we aren't the only dancers at the dance at that point in time. We are dancing with many, many other things. And um, all we can do is our part of the dance can affect the way that the other dancers dance. So we can become part of the choreography, but we can never, you know, completely choreograph the dance. Um, The trees, the animals, the birds, the insects, the microbial organisms, they're all part of the dance, too. And so emergent design is where we are continuing to do our part of the dance and watching what the other dancers are doing, and we are responding to that iteratively, but we are not trying to take their agency away from them, and we're not trying to force them to operate the way that we think they should operate. Again, that comes back. Alan, hello? Oh no! Did we did we lose her? <clears throat> I hear nothing. To uh, dance the way you think they should. Okay, Alan, we just we lost like the last thirty seconds. Okay. Oh wow. Okay. So what was the last thing you heard? I'll go back. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Uh, <clears throat> now I well, I was supposed to be memorizing that. I didn't. That's know, right. I didn't know I was going to be tested. Um, uh, I, I, I was, uh, I was still hung up on, on iterative and like, oh, you were, okay, wait, you were talking about, uh, uh, how systems within systems within systems about how, uh, complex, where, where permaculturalists come in, where a permi comes in. The permis come in is where we start designing typically with living and ecological systems, right? Okay. And so a living system a living organism, whether it be a microbe or a chicken or, you know, a tree or a plant or whatever, all of these things are, they start to exhibit additional kinds of characteristics and systems speak, like autopoiesis, uh, which is self-making. They, they make themselves and they organize things around themselves. Typically, uh, this gets down to um, the fifth, uh, principle, which is everything gardens, they change their own environment um, in, in order to optimize their own um, existence. And so when we're designing a living system or even more an ecological system, which is an assemblage of living organisms, each of which has their own, you know, their own dance to dance. Now we've got this big, huge choreography going on, which is the dance of all the living parts of the system in an ecological system of which we are one of the dancers and in which basically the work with nature rather than against it principle says, don't, don't try. You you will never be the choreographer for all of those living things. Um, you can affect how they dance by how you dance. But the, um, the emergence of the overall big dance is, uh, comes from your interacting with them, um, over time 
as each of you bring your own um, information into the dance. That's how we design an ecological system in ecological systems, which is why it must be not just iterative but emergent. It must go on over time because you know you don't just say, "Well, we designed Wheaton Labs, we're done." No, as long as you are living there, you will be designing Wheaton Labs in the sense that you will be continuing to dance with the emergence of the ecosystem around you. You will do certain things. The ecosystem will respond and dance in its own way. You will observe that, and then you will respond to that. And that is emergent design, which is my name for that whole process. Ongoing, and it acknowledges the agency of all of the living systems around you. I am ready to jump into the five Molsonian design principles. Okay. Um, are are you ready to do this? Are you? I, mean, I am ready. Okay. All right. All right. Number one, work with nature rather than against it. Um, in natural sessions, grasses slowly give way to shrubs, which eventually give way to trees. We can actively assist this natural success, succession, not by slashing out weeds and pioneers, but by using them to provide microclimate nutrients and wind protection for the exotic or native species we want to establish. If we throw nature out the window, she comes back in the door with a pitchfork. And, uh, oh, he's quoting Masanobu Fukuoka there. Yes, yeah, famous quote from Fukuoka. Yeah. Um, for example, if we spray for pest infestations, we end up destroying both pests and the predators that feed on them. So the following year, we get an explosion of pests because there are no predators to control them. All right, so that's that's number one. Work with nature rather than against it. And I, to me, I kind of feel like part of it is is to embrace what is human nature. I'm and and a lot of times, what is human nature is based upon what is the human nature that we have based upon training from our society. What are people going to do, and how do we work with that? So I kind of feel like when the mission is is to solve global problems, then that's kind of like, well, if we come up with a solution that everybody could do, but it would require sacrifice, it kind of seems like that's not going to work with human nature. But if we can come up with a solution that is uh, got extra candy in it and people find it to be especially delicious – and uh, one person says, I have candy and you don't, neener, neener. That kind of appeals to a part of human nature so that everybody wants the candy. And and then we have much greater work in that direction. And I believe that this is – so when working with human nature, this is part of what I'm trying to shoot for with my book, Building a Better World in Your Backyard. But when working with nature, a lot of times it's kind of like what we observe is these trees are being killed by beetles. Therefore, I need teeny tiny machine guns to go out and kill all the little beetles. And then I will save the trees, which are my crop. And it's like, but the beetles 
are part of nature. Mm-hmm. How do we work with the beetles? What's happening there? We need a deeper understanding. We need to not kill the beetles. We need to. We need to ask what the beetles are telling us. Yeah, yeah. It's possible that we wish for there to be fewer beetles, but it's kind of like the beetles are showing up for a reason. And Mother Nature is basically they are a tool of nature, and nature is, is saying, okay, you depleted these soils of so much organic matter that these species aren't going to do good anymore. We're going to grow something else. I'm just going to send these beetles in to kind of, you know, fix the mess you made. Yes. And we'll just, we'll just grow something else. And then I said, but I want the trees to be growing in this space that's not good for it. It used to be good. And then I think what we hear too is, is the phrase, this space must be good for these trees because they've naturally grown here for thousands of years. And it's like, yeah, but see, you, you screwed it up. You changed what's going on here. And now it's not good for these trees anymore. Yeah, and that's part of that static mindset, right? I was talking about earlier, that static mindset of, well, trees have been here for the past thousand years, therefore this is, trees must always be here. And the answer is no. Ecosystems, um, they shift and change over time. And so we have to understand that is the dynamics of ecosystems. Right. Um, Those so trees would have continued to live there for another thousand years, except you showed up. Mm-hmm. Right? And you did a thing that screwed it all up for the trees. But don't worry, nature nature will fix your mistake. It'll be cool. Yep, yep. it's called management by disruption, right? Uh, and, and we can use disruption creatively. What you're talking about is, uh, you know, from the way you're framing it, is somebody who went in and created disruption that was not well thought through and that creates a problem and nature comes in to actually fix the problem. We also know that succession and then resetting successional clocks via disruption is just a natural ecosystem process. And therefore, yes, we can go in and we can uh, introduce strategic disruption in order to manage a landscape and to help with creating diversity and fertility. I'm Edward Norton. No, not that one, the other one. And I love pies. No, not that kind, the other kind. Hermes is an old-school forum packed full of friendly people who occasionally give out a slice of pie. You'll never forget your first slice of pie. It made me feel so good, I had to buy a whole pie so I could share the love. Oh, and there's apples too. Sign up at permies.com to join in the world of homesteading and permaculture, and you too might get a slice of pie. So, and um, I think think there's so much more, but, but of course... Work with nature. I'm, I'm kind of thinking that, you know, even more than work with nature, I, I want to develop a romantic relationship with nature. I want, I want to help nature be what, na- be more. That's what nature wants. Um, yeah. So you're using the metaphor of romancing nature. I pushed it a little bit in a different direction, used the metaphor of dancing with nature because I'm trying to move towards a metaphor that's a little bit more like we're part, we're an integral part of it. We're part of the dance. Okay. Um, to me, I understand exactly where you're going with romancing nature, but to me, it still has this tiny little edge of it's other than us. Like we are here and nature is there and we're going to romance nature. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to figure out like how do I take that metaphor and move it 
into which I am an integral part of the process. Does that make sense? Um, sort of. I'm going to say sort of. I mean, okay. I, I I feel like both are both are in many ways the same. Um, I'm I'm saying I want to romance nature, and I kind of feel like that states that I'm going to be playing a role with nature. Um, but I think what you're trying to say is is that uh, uh, something where I am part of nature, I am also nature. Yes. And and it's like I don't think that uh, the romancing of nature excludes that. I think I think it, so. It's not saying I am I am other than nature. I think it's I think it can be inclusive that I am also nature. I, yeah, we are two natures entering into yeah. a romantic relationship. Yeah, yeah. I, the reason I guess I was wanting to point that out explicitly is because there are a lot of people in my experience, who come to the edge of looking at this way of interacting with and, you know, um, landscape design, and they ha- they bring in the subconscious idea from culture that we are somehow separate. And so I'm wanting to just point that out, that um, we are not. We are, we are an integral part of it. I think with mine, I want to say that nature wants to be romanced. Nature, nature seeks a gardener. Is that fair? Yeah, I think the whole thing is there are many gardeners. Uh, there are human gardeners, and then there are plant gardeners, and there are bacterial gardeners, and there are animal gardeners, and right, we all garden. As a matter of fact, um, the biologist. Um, um, Lynn Margola made the argument that in reality it's the bacteria that do most of the gardening in the, on the planet that, um, and there's some very good reasons to, uh, to sort of like go with that view that all the higher animals and the plants and everything else are actually the gardens, the bacteria. Mycelium would be a gardener as well. Mm-hmm, definitely. And I think we're going to get to that. In a little, in a little bit here, just in a moment. I'm, I'm ready to go on to uh, principle number two. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. The problem is the solution. Everything works both ways. It is only how we see things that makes them advantageous or not. If the wind blows cold, let us use both its strength and its coolness to advantage, for example, funneling wind to a wind generator or directing cold winter wind to a cool cupboard in a heated house. A corollary of this principle is that everything is a positive resource. It's up to us to work out how we may use it as such. Um, <clears throat> I think this one's a great one. Uh, yeah. So so often when you have a problem, then it's kind of like, all right, how is this? this if the problem is the solution, then in, and a lot of times you do, you come up with stuff that's going to be um, uh, a, a way that you had not thought of where you're working more with nature, you're working more with what your resources are, and then uh, you, you derive benefit from it. Yeah, this is um, what I would call a reframing principle. It, it invites you to reframe how you see a situation. Um, 
And uh, I think obviously for those who maybe if you're listening to the podcast who, who haven't heard it before, there's a very, very famous story um, about Mr. Mollison um, and this particular principal um, with uh, a lady who came to him complaining about uh, slugs in her garden. And uh, he very famously responded that, uh, Madam, you do not have an excess of slugs. You have a deficiency of ducks. And um, what he's that comes to this second part. He says a corollary of the principle is that everything is a positive resource and that we have to just work out how it is a resource. So she's complaining about an excess of a, of a resource. And one of the rules of ecological design is that if you allow a, a resource to pile up beyond the ability of the ecosystem to use it, you have just created what is by definition pollution or waste. So, as a designer trying to think about how to create cyclical systems in which nutrients flow in closed-loop cycles through the system, our responsibility is to look at excess resource and figure out how to make it a resource instead of a waste. And so that's one part of it is how do you reframe it and say, I've got all of this thing and it's a problem. And you go, well, no, how, in nature, how would a natural system couple that in a way that turned it into a positive resource instead of a problem. Um, the other thing I would say about this one is it also, uh, I see it emerge like this. People have a piece of property and they say, oh, we want to do this thing with this property. In other words, they have their own idea as to what they want to do with the property. And you go look at the property and you're like, this property is not suited to that use. Right. Um, what and so they they feel it's a mismatch. They feel it's a problem because the property that they had this idea about is not going to to easily support the thing that they want. And so again, you come back to it and go, well, um, what if we were to rethink what the the best and highest uses of this particular land were? What are the resources here and how do we reframe that from being a problem into being the solution? And the solution may be that the first thought that you had about what you wanted to do may not be the most appropriate thing to do. And that by looking at the resource base of the land, that a much better approach suggests itself. Kind of like, uh, uh, well, I, I mean, everything that along those lines that keeps popping into my head is broad acre, but it's it's kind of like uh, when people try to raise potatoes and they get a lot of Colorado potato beetles. It's usually an indicator of how um, the the nutrient that's being provided to the potatoes in their monocrop um, isn't uh, a real good fit, and it's like they, they haven't quite dialed it in right. And mm-hmm. so the, the, the potato plants are not doing so good and in come, you know, nature to correct the problem, remove all of these potatoes so something else can grow here. And that's mm-hmm. like, and, it, and oftentimes it turns out that, oh, this weed keeps getting in here and this weed goes crazy in here. And it's like, maybe your crop needs to be whatever that weed is. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's, you know, and whatever the weed is that's getting in there, maybe there's something that's like that, or maybe it's that. Like, for example, if pigweed is getting in, a lot of times pigweed is actually a form of amaranth. And it's like, maybe you should be growing amaranth. Mm-hmm. 
And it's like, uh, cause it's clearly Amaranth likes it here. You know, stop trying to change things about the land. But, but again, it kind of comes back to like this path to me is, you know, monocropy. It's like not exactly what I'm shooting. Mm-hmm. Um, what, I'd, I'd rather do a completely different thing, but <laughs> you know, it's, oh, um, yeah, he in, in the in the the previous uh, principle, he's he's talked about succession, and here in this one, the problem is the solution. Um, you you can kind of take those two together in a certain way and look at it, and understand that um, if you're working with nature, that um, natural processes of succession are going to suggest how the problem might be the solution. Um, and it, it, when nature comes in to try to fix the problem, as you were saying, that oftentimes you're going to see that in terms of disruption and succession um, and to understand it. So there's a, there's a very good thing to be said here if you're trying to apply these principles about understanding the process of natural succession for the ecosystem and the ecoregion you're designing in. Um, and, um, yeah, that, that would be to me an important, uh, thing as a designer would be to understand the, the hallmarks and the key, the, the species that let you know where you are in succession, where you're designing and that ex- help you understand the successional process, uh, for the, the, the site that you're on. Uh, you ready to go on to number three? Yes. Number three. Make the least change for the greatest possible effect. For example, when choosing a dam site, select the area where you can get the most water for the least amount of earth. Um, this kind of reminds me of uh, a software engineering thing from Extreme Programming called uh, Do the Simplest Thing That Could Possibly Work. Mm-hmm. So when you're doing pair programming, and the two different engineers are looking at a, a pinch of code, and one engineer did it their way, the other engineer did it th- the other way, that um, in the end, the um, if they can't if they can't agree on how to do it, the rule is is that whichever one is shortest wins. So whichever one is uh, the briefest. The, least complex wins. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I think that that's uh, so the same kind of thing. Make the least change to the greatest possible effect. Um, do the simplest thing possibly work. Yeah, I've, I've run into exactly his example here with, um, you know, earthworks um, many times. What's interesting is um, that when you start working with uh, m- machine operators who uh, are used to, you know, working on normal job sites in, in the normal built environment, not ecologically sensitive ones, but just, you know, standard working practice, uh, creating, you know, uh, drainage ditches and, and building pads and so on and so forth. Um, they have these big, powerful machines, and they are used to this idea that it's simple for them just to move a lot, a lot of earth. Right. And, and so landscape architects, certain of the landscape architects get a little 
trigger happy in my estimation. I work with a bunch of landscape architects and they're like, oh, we can just repattern this entire landscape. Um, and, um, and impose our ideas upon it because we have, you know, 30 ton excavators and bulldozers and so on and so forth. And so the question pops up, well, if I can do all that, well, why not? Right. Why should I limit myself to making the least change? Um, when I can just come in and repattern the whole shooting match because just cause I can, it makes me feel good. Um, to see my will imposed upon the landscape. Um, but one of the things I think you learn, um, if you watch this for a while, at least I have, is that um, you have to ask yourself the question, how did that pattern get there in the first place? How did that land form get there in the first place? Well, it got there because of the the unfolding of natural forces over time, wind, water, erosion, uh, deposition, etc. And um, those patterns of force uh, are probably still at work on the site. And so if you try to repattern the entire site without understanding what those forces are, then it's very likely that as soon as you repattern the entire site, the instant you're done, they're going to show up and start putting it back. They're going to start tearing down what you just did because Instead of articulating the existing landform, what you're doing is you're trying to repattern everything. So to me, make the least change for the greatest possible effect has a couple of dimensions to it. Number one is it's the least expensive in terms of money and energy because we're making the least change for the greatest possible effect. Uh, cost me less, requires less time and effort. Um, but also if this an unobvious corollary of that is if you are looking at the existing patterns that the natural world has created over time, instead of attempting to just wipe the slate of that and you instead engage with it, think about how to articulate it, how to work with it, how to expand it, then it's likely that you will have the forces that originally created it helping you in the process instead of attempting to destroy what you've created. So I think there's several layers to this whole, this, this principle um, that requires observation of what is there, observation of why it's there and thought about how you can interact with that in ways that, harmonize with those sets of forces and processes. Ready for number four? Yes. Number four, the yield of a system is theoretically unlimited. The only limit on the number of uses of a resource possible within a system is on the limit of the information and the imagination of the designer. If you think you have fully planted an area, almost any other innovative designer can see ways to add a vine, a fungus, a beneficial insect, or can see a yield potential that has been ignored. I, I don't know. I think that's a, that is a pretty amazing one. Um, you know, 
you could there's 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 gobs and gobs and gobs of more things you can add. If you think you've got all the possible layers into a food forest, it's possible that you could add even more. Like it's it's possible that your jungle could become even junglier. Yes. Well, I, I agree with this principle, but I, I want to edit one word. Okay. The yield of the system is practically unlimited. That would be my edit. Ah, okay, okay. Practically unlimited. It is theoretically limited. I mean, I'm a, I, I've been trained in physics and, you know, so on and so forth. So I can tell you that in any, any finite system, there is a theoretical limit. Um, if you, even in an open system, in a, in a thermodynamically open system, there is a, a theoretical limit. Um, but we're never going to approach that theoretical limit is what he's trying to say. And so to me, it says the yield of the system is practically unlimited. The, the only practical limit is the number of uses of a resource possible within a system is the limit of the information imagination of the designer. I'll agree with that part. If I can just change it from theoretically to practically, I'd be happy. I think that in the world of software engineering, uh, there's a programming pearl that says, if you ever believe that you have found the last bug, you have not. Yeah. And so it's, it's in, a, in a way, it's a similar sort of a thing. There's... Um, uh, Plenty, there's, there's room for more. You just haven't seen it yet. You haven't found it yet. You think you're at the end. You think you're at the maximum. You think that this is the most that can be. So my other, my other, um, thing I would probably tweak on this explanation is that the examples he used are element examples, not networking examples. Um, and what I mean by that is that in, in any eco, Ecos or eco ecology ecosystem. Um, you have the elements in the ecosystem, and you have the web of beneficial interrelationships between them. And um, the resilience of the system is largely a function of the web, the network of beneficial interrelationships. So, as a designer, you can add elements. Absolutely. Uh, in some cases, maybe you improve the system by removing an element. That's another option. But also, you can uh, help to rearrange the system such that you create new beneficial interrelationships between elements. So that actually helps to create yield as well. So he says, if you think you've you've got it all figured out, another designer can see a way to add a vine or a, a fungus or beneficial insect. And we'll say that also an innovative designer can see ways to create new beneficial interrelationships between existing elements that you did not see and therefore also potentially increase yield. True, true. I think, I think a big part of this one is more about how uh, developing relationships with other permies, with other gardeners, with um, with something about you, you're not all that in a bag of chips. Mm-hmm. You are better with others than by yourself. Mm-hmm. And and it's like just when you when you think you've got it all and it is it is perfect and it cannot possibly be improved anymore, then then it turns out that another Kermi, another gardener, can augment always. And it's and I, now granted, part of what you're saying is is practically always, <laughs> mm-hmm. or almost always. 
And it's like, I, I don't know. I kind of feel like, um, you know, when I, part of the design of the Wafati is that I could garden on the roof. Mm-hmm. I have, not only have I expanded my gardening area for my acre, so I have even more gardening space in my acre, but on top of that, I have moved it up higher. So this area is closer to the sun. And I've made it so that throughout the colder season, there is a gentle heat being added to the garden from below. And so um, if a person has a conventional home on an acre, then this particular gardener has an idea about how they could plant even more on that acre. Mm-hmm. And and now, granted, there are books about uh, coming up with a, a series of container gardens that you would put on your roof, you know, that would that would somehow be mounted on your roof in a series of uh, planks and racks and staircases and things. And it's like, but that's all container gardening, which now needs a lot of irrigation. And so then, you know, again, I can still optimize beyond that with a Wafati that has a green roof. Yeah. Right. As an example. Okay. There is one more little thing I would note on this particular principle, which is uh, that you also need to temper this principle with the principle of diminishing returns. Uh, The principle of diminishing returns says that um, in most systems designs, um, when you first start making certain categories of improvements, your marginal improvement for a unit of work um, is large in the beginning. And then as the uh, design becomes increasingly refined, the incremental benefit for the next unit of work becomes smaller. Uh, So it's diminishing returns. You get to the point in any systems design where you have to ask the question, whether it makes sense to put more resources into continuing to refine the design of, of that actively as opposed to merely maintaining the system, or whether your design energy would provide better return on investment by going and investing it in another system that has not been optimized yet. So it's like, yeah, you know, it may have a practically unlimited yield in any particular system, but if you've got another system sitting over there right next to it that hasn't been optimized yet, you may get to the point where, practically speaking, uh, you'd be much better off spending your design energy on the next thing over that is going to give you higher return on investment uh, for your design energy. Absolutely. I, I kind of feel like it comes back to that thing in a way that on a quarter of an acre, you can grow enough food to feed one person, but it's going to take a good 30 hours a week to pull that off. Mm-hmm. But if you have uh, one acre, you can grow enough food to feed one person also, but it's going to take about a tenth of the effort. And so it's it's a different way of expressing the same thing that you just expressed. Mm-hmm. I believe. I mean, I think so. Um, and so, yeah, it's going to be, you know, if you've got an acre and you've got your zone one, zone two, zone three, zone four, then it's it's possible that you're going to expand your zone one, which is going to require more care for that zone one. And with each passing year, your uh, zone one grows, and eventually you don't have a zone four anymore within your acre. 
and then you start to get to the point where it's like, you know what? I think, I think that my time would be better spent if I had a second acre. Like, and so then, and then you might make that move. All right. You ready for the last one? Yes. And then I think we're going to wrap up. Um, everything gardens. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lovely illustration that goes with it, but I think we could leave the illustration for, uh, our next, our next podcast, but everything gardens. And so you kind of talked about this a little bit ago about bacteria possibly being the number one gardener. And, and in a way, everything wants something. So it takes something and it returns something. Mm-hmm. And so I, I always, I love the idea of mycelium. Because it, it is literally transacting trades between different plants, thus effectively gardening the plants. Ooh, another great example is going to be, uh, ants and aphids. Yeah. The, the, the ants literally farm the aphids, moving the aphids around to get the best sugars. Then they give the aphids a little squeeze to get some of that sugary deliciousness right out of their sugary butts. <laughs> So, uh, do you have anything you want to add about everything gardens? Yeah, I could go on this one for a while, but I'll try to just, you know, sum it up. I think when you start looking at the systems view of life and, and the way that it is, it, I've used the term autopoiesis a couple times now, that idea that life is self-making and um, that life systems, one of the hallmarks of a living system is that it, manipulates its environment um, as a byproduct of its own metabolism, that it um, ends up interacting with its environment and shaping its own environment. And there is a theory here. Again, we're talking about, if you go back to uh, some of the, the biologists that have looked at this and go back, you know, billions of years, they start looking at the early, um, you know, um, prokaryotic organisms and how they actually, over the course of, you know, a billion years, changed the atmosphere of the Earth through their metabolic process um, to um, change it from a reducing atmosphere to uh, an oxygenated atmosphere. And this was the beginning of, so you can say that the, the single-cell, you know, prokaryotic bacteria were the first gardeners. They started to garden the atmosphere and prepare that and, and change the dynamics of the atmosphere and once we got to a certain point, that allowed for whole new metabolic pathways to open up. And then higher life forms, you know, eukaryotic organisms started to emerge. And you started to get multicellular eukaryotes. And then you started to, you know, uh, emerge all of the other higher, what we would call higher organisms now. Um, and the, the byproduct of our metabolic activity is to change our environment. And that dance is uh, creates a dynamic equilibrium in the biosphere that we're in, um, where all the living things are actually all involved in metabolic processes, which biochemically help stabilize the biosphere and keep it fit for life. Um, that is the big picture of everything gardens. Um, and so it's true on a global scale. And then it's also true when you come down into the, your own backyard where you realize that the bacteria are gardening, the fungi are gardening, the birds are gardening. 
Um, you know, the earthworms are gardening. Uh, the trees are gardening because they're photosynthesizing and feeding the fungi, uh, starches and sugars for energy. This whole web of interconnections, and this is that dance I'm talking about, that that's it. I just pulled the book off the shelf because it, it uh, and it'll be the last thing I'll, I'll say on this, which is uh, a book by uh, J. Scott Turner called The Extended Organism. This physiology of animal built structures. And he makes a, um, he's a physiologist and he makes a deep argument that, um, there are many structures that animals build which are from a physiological standpoint an actual extension organ of the animal. And one of the examples he uses is the termite mounds, um, specifically many of the ones that are in Africa in which the superorganism of the termite colony creates what he calls an external physiological organism that or to the organ, an external physiological organ um, where the termite mound itself actually regulates temperature and humidity in these deserts. And it therefore is an essential part of their life. They can't live without that structure because that structure maintains and structures the environment to allow for them um, to complete their life cycle. And so to me, I've been looking at this and thinking about how it is that our own buildings, for example, uh, when we live in areas where biologically humans, you know, have to have assistance in living, like in Montana, um, human beings are not biologically organized uh, and equipped to live naked in the woods year-round in Montana. Uh, we have to have technological organs, uh, including our building, uh, buildings and our heating mechanisms and so forth. And so we garden our uh, environment um, in many ways. Uh, yeah, we can garden by growing physical gardens, but we also build structures and we work with flows of resources, energy and materials and, and information to garden uh, our, our whole um, environment. And we can look around us and see how all these other organisms are doing so as well. And when we, the reason that this is the fifth principle to me is because it is recognizing that that is the system, the, these stacked whole systems in which we design and that we um it, it again reinforces to me this idea that we are part of this larger dance. It's a little bit like Botany of Desire by Michael Palmer. Mm-hmm. The idea yep. that the the apple tree effectively uses the animals which eat the apples to yep. help spread their seeds, and right. of course the animals, uh, you know, spread the seeds. They're they're going to be um, passing that those seeds right on through. Um, so I don't. It's it's like so the is the the apple um, is the apple tree gardening these other creatures or are these other creatures gardening for themselves because they enjoy the apples so they're going to do an act which is going to make them more apples. Everything, yes. Everything gardens and it's an and right. It's not an or. It's an and. Um, they it is a network of beneficial interrelationships, and it is that network that helps build the resilience into the ecosystem. All right. I think we're, gra- we're ready to be done for the day. You got anything else you want to add? I think we're good. If you like this sort of thing, 
come on out to the forums at permies.com, where we talk about Bill Mollison, homesteading, and permaculture all the time. All the time. Hey, this is T. Blankenship. Are you a fan of pie? Where there is pie at permies.com. This pie grants the user of secret access. You also get free things like videos of Wheaton Labs, the ability to add two thumbs up, two posts, and more. To get pie, go to permies.com forward slash pie to get the inside scoop of what pie can do for you. Again, that is permies.com forward slash pie.